Hello, stylish folk, and welcome to Handcut Radio. I'm Alex Fetkovich, and this week I'm joined by the voice of one of the dishiest individuals in menswear. He's a designer and an entrepreneur whose work ranges from Savile Row tailoring to luxury streetwear. I'm talking, of course, about Patrick Grant, the award-winning British designer with no less than four brands to his name. His journey through modern menswear is colourful and varied, and his experience gained along the way is invaluable. We talk about how he put everything on the line to transform bespoke tailor Norton & Sons before applying his winning formula to a second brand, E-Torts, and his latest project, Community Clothing. We also explore the challenges of fighting against fast fashion and why historic brands should focus on innovation, not tradition. I've admired his work from afar for many years, so to have the chance to chat was a real treat. Here is what went down. Well, Patrick Grant, uh, here we are. I've been really looking forward to this episode. I, I remember being uh, 19 or 20 years old at university. Um, well, that was, I think, seven, How long ago was that? six, seven years ago, okay. maybe a bit longer. And Norton and Sons was like, I was obsessed with Savile Row, always obsessed with Savile Row. I don't know yeah. where it came from. And when you bought Norton's and transformed Norton's, it, it was like the coolest destination on earth. <laughs> and I absolutely obsessed over it for all my entire university experience. Great. Um, so to finally get to meet you after years of sort of observing your work and writing about your work is brilliant. Yeah, well, pleasure to meet you too. <laughs> That's all right. Um, I, it's, it's tricky to know where to start, isn't it? But I guess we should, we should go right the way back to the beginning to... to, to what? Why you acquired Norton's in the first place? Yes, what, you were not always in menswear. No, I uh, I was never in menswear. If I'm honest, I mean, I I I, I studied material science and engineering as an undergraduate. I worked for in sexy industries like cable manufacturing and Ooh, silicon chips. Joyous. Um, I then I went back to university with no specific intention apart from just to kind of broaden my own horizons. I, so I went back and I did an MBA um, at the age of 31 and spent two years at Oxford and, and had a really nice time and got involved in lots of great stuff. And by complete accident, found an advert in the back of the Financial Times ah. in a section that I didn't even know existed called Businesses for Sale. It's probably still there. It's, I'd never looked at it before. I, the, the circumstances were slightly unusual. I was supposed to have lunch with a, a friend who's still a good friend. Um, and he stood me up. And so I got, to, I got to New College Dining Hall late. The undergrads had nicked all the papers apart from the FT, <laughs> which I wouldn't normally sit and read at lunchtime. Um, but that's all there was. And so I read it. And I, you know, and, and I was late, so there was nobody else I knew. So I sat and read this newspaper. And there was this little advert and actually, weirdly, I had a piece of work that I was supposed to do. I can't remember. I think it might have been a finance project. And I was looking. I was thinking, oh, well, maybe a, an acquisition thing might make an interesting piece of work. So I looked at the, at the businesses for sale section for that reason. And in the middle was this little postage stamp sized thing that said, for sale, tailors to kings, emperors and presidents. <laughs> Please write to Mr. N. Granger at 16 Savile Row. And I thought, oh, my God, is that a Savile Row? tailors for sale or is that something else so I wrote Mr Granger a letter I mean this was this was only 15 years ago so email was already very a big thing but yeah. you know it was still write me a letter so, Savile Row so, goes yeah exactly goes. yeah that's the pace that we existed <laughs> at then um and he sent me back this this sort of memorandum of information if you could call it that and uh you know, I thought, well, oh my God, this is actually a real tailor's. How on earth is there an, an actual Savile Row tailor's for sale in the back in of the paper? Small <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, in the small ads. Yeah, in the classified <laughs> section. Um, and so I went to see him. I thought, oh my God, I mean, this is, this is amazing. And uh, so I, I, tra- I, I, I traipsed down there from, from Oxford on the train and I, and I got there. And, and Norton's looked very different then. And it looked... You know, it just looked it looked a bit tired. Mm. It looked a bit, you know, careworn and and you know, it was kind of economically it was on its uppers and 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 
but you you knew that this was a proper tailor's that had you know and it had nearly I think when I bought it it was 189 years old yeah and it had this fabulous history and you know but the shop looked a bit like a jumble sale yeah and they'd sort of lost their way a bit they were they were they were set they got I mean Nick Granger who ran it was a, was a lovely chap and 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 I and I still speak to him every every six months or so but. He'd sort of driven it down a country pursuits, country sports kind of angle because that was his comeback. He was like, he liked to shoot, he liked to fish. Um, and, you know, and we'd had success in the 80s and 90s with customers in places like, you know, Houston who, you know, shot, you know, partridge hunting and big mm. game hunting and all this sort of stuff. And that was the, 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 the direction that he'd driven it in. And it had been, become a bit pigeonholed. Yeah, um, but you knew it was a great thing underneath it all, and and you know we didn't have much of a team left, um, but it was it was there and it was real, and you're like this is an actual proper tailor's. And but what, so when you sort of first walked through the doors, were you immediately thinking, what? I'm amazed to sort of get inside your head. Were you thinking, oh, I don't. Is this is this no, an opportunity? I, or? I I walked in the door and you know you saw the outside, you saw the shop, you saw the inside of the shop, and I mean frankly it was a kind of it was a bit of a mess mm. and you know and the branding was a bit of a mess, the story was a bit all over the place and 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 all I could think was I could probably do a better job of this right sort of you know arrogantly possibly naively, but, you know, here's me, who my only previous job in clothing was, like, working on the shop floor at Gap. I, um, I thought, you know, I, I can see where this can be, you know. I think, funny enough, I was having a conversation with a friend of mine the other day, and, and she does a, a, a very successful podcast, and, you know, she was talking about how she and the partner that she does it with, she'd had this realisation the other day that, for the first time ever, he'd actually seen what it was going to be, whereas she'd seen what it was going to be right at the very beginning. And she was saying, you know, you, you understand this, don't you? Because you're the sort of... Per- I'm, I'm, like, I'm like, oh, so some people can't see these things. But, you know, I could see very clearly in my mind's eye what Norton's could be. You know, I could visualise every part of it. So the second and you walk in, you're starting I'm thinking, to piece it together. Right, well, this is fine. I can understand exactly how this can be. It's the same when, I, you know, if I walk into a... What, you know, I just bought a derelict house in Yorkshire. I walked in, I'm like, I can see what this can become. And some people, some people are, I mean, it's, it's, it's a, it was a, a sort of revelation to me that some people can't see these things, but they, they can't. And it's quite often, fine enough, we then got to talk about, you know, we were talking about community clothing. And, you know, I can see what that will be. Mm. In 20 years time, if everything goes right, I can see it all. And, you know, but I'm trying to convince investors who yeah. haven't got the same gift of like <laughs> foresight or imagination or whatever it happens to be. People's brains work in different ways. Anyway, I could see Norton's in its finished form and was really excited about getting there. And also I thought, well, that's not going to cost a huge amount of money. No. It's just going to be a, a sort of tidying up, finessing job. And yeah, so I... I, I but you, went you for it. I'm pretty sure, didn't you remortgage your house and sell your car and you sort of put everything uh, on the yeah. line for it? I didn't, I didn't have the money. No, I was fortunate when I moved, I worked for a big, I worked for a big engineering firm in, in the Northwest and then moved to Oxford and worked for a tech, very successful tech startup and was lucky that I was able to hang on to my house in Liverpool and buy another house in Oxford. And luckily the house in Liverpool, you know, Liverpool property, Liverpool had been through this great transformation. Mm. So, you know, I had a bit of money in that house and I remort so I sold that house I remortgaged the Oxford house I did sell my car I sold my grandmother I sold everything <laughs> I could get my hands on um, you know and, 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 and luckily I bumped into an old pal from prep school at a wedding and he said what are you doing and I said well I'm trying to buy this tailors on Savile right. Road he's like what <laughs> he's like well can I help Wicked. and I said well if you've got any money you could help and also I mean he was a he was a he was a, 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 a very successful guy in, in advertising and uh, he worked at Grey at the time and then went on to Wyden and Kennedy. Um, and he'd just been given a bonus and bought himself a Porsche. So he sold his Porsche, 
and put the money into Norton's. On the spot. <laughs> on the, pretty much on the spot. <laughs> oh, that must have stunned. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and a couple of old friends from, from university, undergrad, put some money in. One of my, a, a guy in the year below me at, um, at Oxford put some money in. Um, my old boss, the guy who'd paid for my MBA in the first place, he, um, he put some money in. Ah. And so we've got a little group of shareholders who, you know, none of whom are very rich, none of whom know very much about clothing, but all loved it. And, mm. uh, and you know, 15 years later, most of them are still shareholders. Um, so I've got, I've got, there are two, two thoughts now bubbling away in my head. The first is, what, did, what was the game plan? How did you transform this, this confused, sort of tired little brand? And the second is... Um, Norton's has always struck me as a very quiet house on Savile Row. It's very discreet. You don't make a lot of noise. So how did you how did you get it out there while also being very quiet? Well, the the the, the answer to the first one is the plan was really simple. Um, we just wanted to try and see if we could go back to just being a really good bespoke tailor. Um, having been involved in selling shotguns and 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 field sports paraphernalia and sporting tours. Oh, I didn't know. I mean, it that. was doing all sorts of different things. I mean, we had to keep the front door locked. There was a CCTV camera. There was, so it was clear, <laughs> basically clear the decks, go back to trying to do what we should have been doing, not be, you know, a field sports house, but be a bespoke, a, a bespoke tailors um, and just try and hire the best team that we could and build a business based on doing one thing and doing it well. And, and that's what we set off doing. Um, how did we manage to do it? And I think it's, I think I'm, I'm delighted that you feel that we're a kind of quiet, non-shouty brand. We sort of, you know, I, I like the fact that we're small. I like the fact that we're not out there. You know, the world of, the world of men's luxury has become very stretched, mm. you know, and, and what used to be luxury to me feels quite unluxury because you can buy it at every airport and every city in the world. And I think, yeah. you know, there's, there's something about, you know, uh, there's something about doing things the right way and doing them quietly and just allowing customers to find you rather than being out there shouting about it that I quite like. Like, you know, we, we don't shout about our customers. We don't, we've never given away free clothes. We've never, you know, paid any Instagram influencers. We've, we've just done what we've done mm. and allowed people to come to us because they like it. And it's exactly the same as what we do with eTorts. You know, this is what we do. If you like it, we're here. If you don't like it, or you then then fine. There's it's, something else for you. But. It's um, very gratifying to me to hear uh, a, someone in our industry talk like that because something I say to my consultancy clients all the time is: if you build, if you do one thing well, and you build a little, a community will form around it. Yeah. You don't have to go out there and pursue everything and uh, prostrate yourself before the masses. Well. I, you know, I think about the brands that I really like, you know, and there are, there are not that many of them anymore. You know, there are brands that I used to really like that in the last 10 years I've been completely turned off by the way they're going about doing their business. Also by the way that they've changed the way that they make their product. Yeah. You know, we've always been, you know, we've always, we've built Norton's and Torts on exactly the same basis. We try and make the best things that we can out of the best things we can find and we try and make clothes that people will enjoy wearing for a really long time. And, you know, we're not chasing, you know, we're not out there chasing trends. It's funny, I had a meeting yesterday with the boss of menswear at Harrods and we were talking about men's fashion. He was saying it's, you know, it's very sort of quickly turning itself around. You know, we've had this period of, you know, we've had ugly trainers and logos gone, gone completely mad across the whole of menswear. Mm. And he says he feels like it's turning back around. And I'm thinking, Great, because we're there, where it waiting we're for waiting it. for it to come back round. You know, we haven't gone off and tried to be all things to all men. We've tried to be the sort of house that has integrity, and you know, we've tried to do things as honestly as we possibly can throughout. And you know, how how did Norton's get to be successful? Well, we we got lucky. We got lucky in two ways. Firstly, the BBC rocked up with in the in the second year we were there 
and made a documentary series about Savile Row. And the guy that made it, a guy called Ian Denyer, who's an amazing BAFTA-winning documentary maker, he and I got on really well. And he, I told him I was going off to Harris to source some tweed, and he said, well, can I come along? And so he followed me, even though, you know, we, we went on this mad trip to Harris, and I took him to meet some of our weavers. And I was, you know... When I came to Norton's, I did a couple of things. I, you know, I said, right, we're, we're just going to do bespoke. And, and secondly, we're going to go back to just using British cloths where we can. So, yeah. you know, for woolens, it's all British because I think they're, they're the best cloths in the world. You know, the, the Huddersfield and Scottish weavers or the Yorkshire and the Scottish weavers just make amazing stuff. Mm. And, you know, and, and, and they've been underserved by the world and, you know, the Italians are great at telling everyone how great they are. And the British are very good at being great and not telling anyone at all. And, you know, and so we said, look, we're, we're going to do that. And we're going to celebrate the fact that we're a small house and we work with small mills that make amazing stuff. And, of course, it's different, you know. And, and Harris Tweed is probably the most iconic of those. Yeah. It's probably the most iconic brand in the world. So it's, you know, it's a... Um, so he, he came with me to, to Harris and we, we, we arrived at... The day before William Haggis, not made up name, <laughs> bought the biggest mill and sort of did this whole oh, kind of transformation was... and decided to only make a few patterns yeah, and sort of industrialized Harris Tweed. And, and, and we were there as that broke. And so there was this big furore and, and we, we, you know, we were in the middle of it. Anyway, just a great trip. We, we, we got sunny weather and we went to see Donald John Mackay and, and, and you know, he was amazing and... And that, that documentary, you know, there was three hours on BBC Four. It was the most watched thing on BBC Four that year. It went on to BBC Two. They repeated it on Four. They repeated it on Two. It went on to British Airways. I have watched it on YouTube probably 20 times. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you know we got far more than our fair you did, share you of did coverage. did very well. You know, there was a bit about, there was was... A bit about our rebranding in episode three, and there was a great bit about us going to Harris in episode one. One of your very colourful clients made a cameo as yeah, well. Yeah, John Blashford Snell. God bless him. Tremendous he's absolutely chap. brilliant. He's a... He's a he is an amazing chap. I mean, he's, a, he's quite a character. He's done extraordinary things. And actually... Um, Always in a tweed suit. Exactly. Listeners, is, if, you, if you haven't seen it, go and check it out, because it, it is, I believe, still on YouTube. And uh, Mr. Blashford Snell has the most... Colonel Blashford Snell. Forgive me, Colonel Blashford <laughs> Snell has the most amazing safari suit on, Norton safari suit in that documentary with lots of bells and whistles. Yeah, literally. literally. Whistles. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> So that was a great, a bit of great fortune. And, and, and honestly, the day after it aired, we got four new clients through the door and it just kept on coming. And it, it, it genuinely transformed our business. I mean, it, it probably doubled our business that year. Wow. Um, the other thing that happened was that uh, a young, pretty much unknown outside the world of London menswear designer called Kim Jones... Um, met my friend Martin, who was the one who told the Porsche. Martin was making a documentary for Channel 4 called The Search for Cool, in which he tried to sort of unearth the, 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 the essence of coolness. Right. What does it take? What makes something cool? Who makes something cool? When do they decide that it's not cool? And one of the people that he interviewed for that was, was Kim Jones. And Kim Jones at the time was a relatively unknown menswear designer in London, come, came from St. Martin's, doing really well, part of, you know, came through Fashion East, New Gen, but, you know, globally wasn't well known. And Kim, he met Kim. He said to Kim, oh, you should go and meet my friend Patrick. He's just taken over at Norton & Sons. You know, it's uh, this amazing thing. So Kim came and was blown away by everything that we were doing and said, look, you know, I'd love to do something at some point. And we said, well, you know, whenever, just give us a shout. And six months later, he did. Um, he rang us up and, or emailed me, I can't remember, and he said, you know, we can, we've got some things that we want to make for the show. They're really a bit complicated. We can't really think of anyone else who can make them or even cut the patterns. This guy called Andre Walker, who'd sort of come up with these mad kind of mad tailoring things. constructions. So we said, well, let me just, I said, well, I'll, I'll just go and check, see if we've got any time, Kim. So through the back, the tumbleweed's blowing. <laughs> I think we can just about squeeze you in. Um, and we did it. We worked with him for that season. He showed it in New York that season. Um, 
And then we worked with him again the following season. And then he blew up. He won Menswear Designer of the Year that year. Then he went to Dunhill. Then he went to Louis Vuitton. Now he's at Dior, you know, and he's a superstar. And, but he was really, really generous with, with, you know, with telling people about us and what we did. And, you know, as a result of, of working with Kim, you know, Lee McQueen became a customer. We ended up working with all sorts of London designers. We started working with Christopher Kane, who we've worked with pretty much ever since. Mm -hmm. We still, you know, we still make pieces for Christopher's runway. Um, we've worked with all sorts of amazing people in London and elsewhere. And it sort of brought, uh, you know, a halo to what we did. You know, the fact that the world's most talented young designers were coming to Norton's either to work with us or to have their clothes made mm. was a great thing. And we ended up, you know, that's how we, you know, we, we worked with, with Christian Louboutin on the shoes for torts because Christian Louboutin became a customer and, and, and you know, it just... and it all just helps and spirals. And so that was it. We had two bits of good luck. And, and, and between those two things, our, our business was kind of transformed. And in the meantime, all I did was, you know, repaint the shop, tidied up a bit, you know, you did redo the cleared up the branding exactly. a little bit, just sim simplified everything. Right. You know, we we didn't we didn't do much. We, also, it was a great. So we worked with a, a firm called Moving Brands on the branding, and we've we, we we still work with them now. They've they've just done the latest community clothing Clarion magazine with us, and they're helping us on all sorts of things. They do the illustrations for the Norton's postcards. Cool. Um, and we wanted to t you know we wanted to clean it up, but we didn't want to change it if that feels if that seem if that doesn't if that makes sense mm. so we, we we you know they were using various different brand names and different brand identities and different logos and different fonts and, blah, and stuff so we just tidied it up to one little thing and we even to the extent where i mean we did some nice little, i mean one of the things i think I, I remember most fondly is they noticed that the suns the s at the front of suns on norton and sons on the front of the shop had been installed upside down in 1980. And I don't think anyone had noticed. Um, so, but obviously hmm. them being, you know, being, being, you know, being font junkies, yeah. they were like, hang on, the first S in Sons or Norton and Sons on the front of your shop is upside down. I'm like, so it is. Right. Um, anyway, so yeah. if you look at Norton and Sons, like, logo now, the second S is also... Is, also that is, way around. The, the first S on Sons is upside down anyway but we just it, it, we just cleaned it all up and created a, a sort of identity system that worked across all the things so our you know our postcards and letterheads and envelopes and we tidied up the order sheet we were re we really wanted to to celebrate the beauty of the the process of how we go mm. through making the the, 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 um, the clothes and that's all we did so why now you you obviously you make that sound very simple and you are very modest because you're sort of putting a lot of that early success down to, to good luck and interesting opportunities but obviously Norton's has become a very successful elegant tailors my next question to you is why why do you think heritage brands struggle to do that because they become shackled by their own perception of their history when you think about the men that founded these houses, whether it's, you know, whether it's Walter Norton or Edward Torts, they were innovators. They were men who were trying to push things forward. And I think that is the thing to remember. Not the 200, what you, not what you have done in the 200 years, but the idea that your founder would have taken and what he would have, how he would have treated today's menswear market. I don't think it does anybody any good to, 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 to dwell on the past too much. And I look at some of my neighbours and I think, well, that's, that's lovely. But, it, you know, some of them seem a little bit sort of set in aspic. And I think you can take things too far. And I think there are, uh, there are examples on the row of houses that have gone too far too fast. And I don't blame them for doing it because, again, I think, you know, that particular person in that particular time is one particular example I'm thinking of, you know, that's what felt right to him. And he went for it and he did it with full gusto. It just left his customers a little bit confused. Yeah. And, and I think some of them, you know, deserted as a result. And then he got the boot and somebody else. I mean, we try, I think, the, you know, I think the, the mistake many, many people coming into the row make is that these things can be, that change can happen quickly. You know, I, I, I like, I, the brands I like, I am faithful to. 
and, and I am faithful to them and have been faithful to them in many cases for 30 years now. It takes a lot to make me stop liking a brand mm. and it takes quite a bit to make me jump onto something else. And I think that process is a slow one. And I think anyone who doesn't understand that fails to grasp the way men think about their stuff. Um, and, you know, I've seen people come into the street and try and transform houses you know, I've seen, you know, I mean, it was the, the, the sad case of Hardy Amy's. That, yeah. I mean, frankly, it was a women's wear business anyway. Became a men's. I mean, we were Hardy Amy's tailor. We did at Norton's. We did all the tailoring for Hardy, for him and for Hepworth when he was doing that. And, and you know, they, they set off with, you know, when Claire Malcolm, who was hired from us, she was, she worked with me on torts at the beginning. You know, they, I think they gave a, a season and a half and then they were like, right, this has got to change. And then it's got to change again. And, you know, it's constantly chasing something. Yeah. I think, you know, men, men don't like to have stuff shoved down their throats. As you say, they like to discover it for themselves. They like to understand that, you know, this isn't just a flash in the pan. You know, it takes me, you know, the things I like, I mean, I'm wearing a pair of Vans. I've worn Vans for, for 30 years. I lived in Santa Cruz. I got into Vans because, you know, and they're true to what they do. I mean, other brands that I like, like, you know, I was up at Tricker's Factory. Trickers do their thing. Yeah. They don't chase around trying to follow whims and trends. That's what they're good at. That's what they do. They do it to the best of their ability. And that's why I love them. Same, like, you know, it's actually a lot of footwear brands. Red Wings do the same thing. Like that classic Red Wing boot, if they ever stop doing it, they'll lose me as a customer, but they never will, I don't think. You know, I, I you know, I like, I like to know that things are being done right mm. before I... That, that, that is a very male thing, isn't it? I think that you're absolutely right. That's something that um, I think a lot of brands forget about, that they're, they're dealing with a consumer base that will change a tiny bit in five years. Yeah. Um, that is really interesting. I think I, re I read a report somewhere that it takes an average of, of two years from a man to see... To, to read about a trend for him to actually adopt it, which is quite depressing because, you know, if I'm writing something, to think that actually a large part of the readership is going to take two years to listen to me. Yeah. Uh, but there we are. Well, we see it with torts. You know, we, when, when did we first do the... I know, sorry. We, we first did... I'm referring to Ickler in the corner. Um, <laughs> we, we first did the field trousers, I think, about five years ago four years ago five years ago i can't remember exactly and again for context for listeners i have a pair i love them <laughs> they're these huge great big almost sort of workwear style oxford bags yeah they're, they're they're based on a 50s military trouser right they're a sort of simplified version of that but the shape is largely the same and that the construction is as as durable as those were um we put them in a collection and i think the first season that we did them we sold about 60 pairs globally to all of our wholesale accounts. And the following season, I think we sold about 120, then it went up to 200, then it went up to 500, you know, and it has grown ever since. And now they're a staple part, but it's exactly that. You know, I think season one, you know, the, the boss of Supreme in Japan bought a pair, the uh, Nick Worcester bought a pair. Sure. Um, you know, it's like five people globally yeah. wore them. And then they're like, little gang of friends or sort of followers went, those trousers are quite cool. We'll have a pair. So it went from one person to maybe 10 people. And then it goes to, you know, and then 12 months later, it goes to another, you know, it goes to 100 people. And that's how I think, that's, that's how I think big sort of sustainable things happen. Mm. It doesn't, you know, brands are too into making stuff happen in a hurry. And we're just not into that. And that's, that's why, you know, it's funny. When we, when we think about our business, when I think about my business, I don't think, you know, how is eTorts going to get to be, you know, an enormous business? You know, we probably have globally, I would have thought about 2,000 customers. If we can keep those 2,000 customers and every couple of years add another 1,000 customers. Yeah. That is success to us. If we can become a brand where 10,000 people in the world really love us, I'm, I'm, I'm retiring very, very happy. That's the full extent of it. That's, you know, if each one of those 10,000 people spend a thousand pounds a year, we've got an amazing business and we don't have to, you know, we don't have to, to 
dilute anything that we're doing in terms of our integrity in design, our integrity in manufacturing, our tone of voice, mm. our you know sort of lack of spam on you know we're not out there emailing people every week going buy more stuff. It doesn't have to be that big mm. to be good. And I think the problem now is that most of the world's luxury businesses are owned by people whose only concern is, how can I make this bigger? Mm. And, that's and then good. sell it. And then sell it, or I don't know. I mean, it's not... It, it, I, I, look, they're much richer than I am. They might be much <laughs> happier than I am. But you know what? I, I, I sleep well at night knowing that you know, I'm, I'm stewarding something of real value and, you know, and, and I'm not going to, you know, I'm, I'm not going to change that. Last week, I introduced our first podcast sponsor, British perfumer, Florist London. If you tuned in, you'll know that Florist has just launched its first new men's fragrance in five years, a handsome scent called Vert Fougère. Today, I'd like to introduce you to Florist's perfumer, Nicola Pozzani, whose baby is Vert Fougère. Um, Nicola, could you give me a quick whiz through what the fragrance actually smells like? Hi, Alex. Of course I can, and thank you for your questions. So, uh, Vert Fougère is a green fougère perfume, and I would describe it as an encounter between light and dark, rich and warm notes. It's got crisp, raw, dark green herbs with a tad of citrus on one side, and then you've got this more velvety, smoky, enveloping woods on the other. It's a sort of balance of opposites. Wonderful. Thank you, Nicola. Well, just a reminder that Floris has given us a hundred samples of Vert Fougère to give to listeners. Visit handcutradio.com forward slash Floris and input your postage details for the chance to receive a free sample. Plenty of samples went last week, so don't miss out. More from Nicola next week, but for now, on with our interview. Well, let's talk a little bit about torts then, because if, if Norton Sons is the perfect, impeccable Savile Row suit, torts occupies a very different kind of identity, I guess. Yeah. Um, where did the interest in torts come from? Why did you decide to do something a little bit more directional, I guess, in terms of design? Well... Firstly, I mean, Torts, Edward, Edward Torts was, was, was arguably the most innovative cutter working in London in the 19th century. I mean, this is the man that revolutionised sportswear. He invented the knickerbockers. Yeah. He took men out of starched collars for golf. He was, you know, he was the man that deconstructed sportswear. When, you know, when people were playing, were, were doing sport in top hats and frock coats, <laughs> yeah. he said, well, this is mad. You want to be doing it in these kind of looser, baggier, engineered. And, you know, and you read, you read the adverts for torts and it was specialist this and, you know, innovative that and new fabrics for the, you know, new waterproof Oxford Meltons for hunt coats and whatever it happened to be he was a real he was a real kind of envelope pusher in um in in that in that world and and was very successful because of it and you know ended up holding royal warrants to various european houses and had a store in paris on the uh, rue faubourg saint honoré right opposite the elysee palace you know this was a successful business they had a huge build they built their own building on oxford street when oxford street was was the place to be oh, um you know, and there's photographs of it and, you know, there's features of it in the magazines from around about that time, sort of 1890s. It's great, the grand staircase. They had a whole basement where they kept the buckskins so that they could keep them at the right humidity so that they remained like, like in perfect flexibility. Um, it, it was a big and successful business. And like many, many other sportswear houses, died a death in the 20th century when, you know, because of two world wars and a complete change in British society, that just disappeared. Mm. So Norton's bought them in the 60s. Same with Hammond & Co. Norton's bought Hammond. They bought two other firms, one called Todd House Reynard and another uh, called Whore & Co. Oh. And um, we'd, we'd been asked to do a bit of ready-to-wear stuff at Norton's. Actually, it was Beams in Japan. Um, they had asked us if we'd do some stuff. And we did one little collection for them. It was just some knitwear. I'm trying to think what else it was. I think it was mostly knitwear. 
And they said, this is great. We really like it. Can you do some more? And I thought, look, I've, I've, I've just got Norton's to a point where it's working. And I don't want to mess with that formula. But I knew that we had eTorts sort of sitting dormant in the, you know, in the back office. Um, you know, it was on the letterhead. It was, you know, incorporating eTorts. And uh, what right. But it wasn't, it wasn't out there. When, it, when, when, when Norton's bought it, actually there was one of the tailors who's since retired who worked for us who had worked on the Torts product when Norton's had bought Torts. And, you know, so you could still come to Norton's and get a Torts label in your suit. And, but, okay. and then that was sort of phased out as the customer's phased out um <laughs> in inverted commas um but um it felt it also torts had done ready-made stuff they'd sold you know and they'd also sold all sorts of things they sold hunting knives and driving blankets and patented hunting pinks fluids and all sorts of I mean, a mad assortment of stuff bizarre stuff so um it felt sort of more it felt it felt also, it hadn't been around, you know, since the since the sixties. So, I thought we'll 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 dust off torts and we'll use that. That brand can be our ready to wear brand because it, you know, and it had a, it had a sort of younger, sportier feel. You know, Churchill was a mad torts fan when he was at school. He famously, well, not that famously, but famously to me, uh, he wrote to his mum imploring her to send torts breeches, and you know, he was yeah, a I he must was a, have torts. Yeah, I must. The only brand I want is torts. Like, Dear you know, um, <laughs> and you know, and this was when he was a skinny young cavalry Sporting, officer. Yeah, yeah. and well, I mean, we also made him we made him jockey silks. And oh, you did, didn't yeah, you? Yeah. And chocolate and pink, chocolate and pink jockey silks with, oh. with cashmere with cashmere racing breeches, um, but. Um, the idea with Torts was to do was to, again, obviously with with Norton's, it's it's you know it's 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 your suit. You come to us, we have a conversation, we might help you a certain amount, we might help you not at all, but it's it's your suit. You know, we're cutting it and sewing it, and but it's yours, and it's your taste that's you know that's that's prevailing. Um, with Torts, it's my taste and. Nicholas taste that's prevailing and you know we we establish what we think is you know good clothes for modern men to wear and you know we have a very particular aesthetic and it's you know and I I, I have a very simple wardrobe I wear roughly the same stuff pretty much all the time and I like you know those field trousers the trousers that I wore the big we we've I, I've the the big shirts that we that we do were based on a a shirt from the 80s that I found in a flea market in Rome. It had this big bell sleeves, mm. wide body. Um, it's very different to anything else. And when we, you know, we, we had a shop in London for, 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 for just under five years. And we, we had a customer base that I was really happy with. It's the sort of customer base that I think Tom Ford wishes he had. Um, you know, it was architects and Turner Prize winning yeah. artists and creative directors and, you know, CEOs of, you know, fashion businesses and other designers. And, you know, because our stuff is very unshouty. Yeah. It's very understated. It's, it's quite engineered. You know, most of what we do is very precisely cut. Um, and led by the silhouette, I guess. Led by the silhouette entirely. You know, it's, it's great materials. It's interesting silhouettes. It's, you know, it's functional. So we do really useful pockets on our shirts. The most successful garment that we have today is a shirt called the lineman shirt. And the pockets were based on a railway lineman's shirt. And it's, you know, it's, it's sized so that you can fit a penguin paperback in it on either side. So you can carry two paperbacks on the front of your shirt without really noticing it. But, you know, we, we make it all in our own factory. Um, I mean, I would say probably 80% of the garments that we sell at Torts are made in our own factory in the UK. So we know that we make them incredibly well. It's an old military clothing factory that we bought four years ago. And the other thing that we do that I think is really important is that we, you know, it's, it's I mean, I'm making clothes that I want to wear. And, and luckily, there are other people that want to wear those same clothes. And every season, I, you know, I, I, we're not flip-flopping around from one thing to another. You know, what, what you get with us is a sort of steady move forward. And I think it's interesting that... Often, you know, I spend a lot of time talking about sustainability and this kind of oxymoron that, you know, sort of sustain, this idea of sustainable fashion, you know, when the whole point of fashion is that 
you get rid of one thing and move to something else. Mm. I think it's really, it's, it's, it's important that we have a philosophy that allows us to, 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 to deal with that in a sensible way. And the way I see it is, is and I've, I've used this anecdote a number of times in talks that I've done, you know, in, in, the, in the 50s and 60s, when, when, when Volkswagen were designing the Beetle, they, you know, they designed the Beetle and they made the best version of the Beetle that they possibly could. And every subsequent version of the Beetle, they tried to make it a little bit better. So they tried to make it you know, more fuel efficient, make the brakes sharper, make it safer, make the windscreen wipers better, whatever it happened to be. But each version of the Beetle was not so remarkably cosmetically different from the previous version that anyone that bought the last one would feel embarrassed to be driving the Mark I when the Mark II was out. Ditto the Mark III. So, you know, Volkswagen is saying, we, we, we made the best Beetle that we can. We love how it looks. You know, drive it, buy it, own it. But, you know, don't be embarrassed to carry on buying, driving that one when the, when the new one comes out. We'll continue to make it better all the time. But, we, you know, yeah, the, the first one the we first made was one great. Is still it's still standard. great. And you can still drive it. And we hope you drive it for 50 years. And at the same time, the American car industry... Their philosophy was every year we're going to bring out a new model that is so radically cosmetically different from the last one that everyone that drives, you know, the Mark One is going to feel like a dick because Mark Two <laughs> is so remarkably different. And that's 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 two distinct philosophies on how to go about sort of everything. You know, the American car, like make it new every year. That's Apple. Like just have more shit and keep on buying more stuff because you know we we want you to just keep on crunching through this stuff. And we're more like Volkswagen, like that shirt you bought last year, love it. And please keep it for 30 years. And if you want a new one, we're here. We've got one that we think is maybe slightly better than the last one, but the last one was still fantastic. And that's, that's our philosophy in all of this stuff. You know, we don't want people to buy clothes today and chuck them away tomorrow. I want you to buy a pair of field trousers and keep them for 30 years. And we make them that well so that you can do that. Also, they get better with time. You know, mm. you know from wearing them, like with all good stuff, with good shoes, good clothes, good suits, you make something out of something brilliant, it will get better and you will love it more because it's been with you through all this stuff. You know, it's literally sort of absorbed the stories of your life as you've, as you've worn it. And, you know, it's become patinated and scored and, you know, even the little rips and repairs tell a story. And, and that's part of the charm of good stuff. And I think it's really sad to me that lots of people are growing up having never experienced wearing really amazingly made clothes, partly because now it is, you know, comparatively very expensive. I mean, we know, you know, I know that this stuff, because it will last so long, actually over the course of its life will end up costing you a lot less. But for a lot of people, they can't make that leap, mm -hmm. um, you know, because the cheap end of the fast fashion market will sell you a t-shirt for a pound, you know, all of a sudden, well, not all of a sudden, but you know, that 60 pound t-shirt, that is a big ask. Mm. And that's sort of why we ended up doing the community clothing thing to try and bridge that gap. But, you know, it's our philosophy with torts is really straightforward. You know, we will, we will keep nudging it forward, but we're never going to make you feel embarrassed to be wearing last year's stuff. But, but what I love about uh, what you've just said is you've almost just kind of joined up some dots for me because while I knew, uh, I knew a little bit about the origins of the brand and Edward Torts, I hadn't really processed that it was an innovative sportswear brand in its day. And of course, what you've done is you've taken uh, what's, what it means to create sportswear clothing in the 21st century and just done it your own way. That, that sporty aesthetic, it sort of directly links all the way back to whenever it was founded in 18 or 17, 67, whatever. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's brilliant. But you've touched on community clothing, and I want to kind of complete this little circle of all your different projects. Um, you, you, you have to wear a different kind of, I guess, luxury hat for Etorts and then for Norton's. And the other side of what you do is community clothing, which I, I, I don't know how you describe it. I guess it's much more about value. Is that it's, fair? It's, ev it's everyday basics. Fine. It is what we've tried to do. So community clothing was born out of my kind of sadness that all these amazing factories in the UK were struggling to, to keep themselves going. And one of those was a company called Cookson & Clegg, who was a big supplier to torts, made the field trousers, made a lot of our outerwear, 
made you know various products for us that we couldn't get elsewhere they were going to be shut down we bought it um and having bought that and looked at the business it was really clear that there were some big fundamental problems with it you know these were businesses that in their heyday were making clothes you know 365 days a year not quite but you know they were they were full all year round making great stuff and you know people like marks and spencers were using great quality british factories and making really good quality everyday basics you know when i was 14 and going to boarding school i wore m&s v-neck lambs mm. wool jumpers and i had three different colors I wore them underneath my blue blazer and I've still got some of them. I've still got at least one of them, um, the burgundy one, but they were amazing quality. They made amazing quality pants and socks and T-shirts yeah. and shirts. My first suit at school actually looked a bit like that one over there. Uh, it was a dark Prince of Wales check with a blue overcheck. It was a sort of charcoal gray with a blue overcheck, nice. pure wool suit. It was double breasted and it was from Marks and Spencer's and it lasted me. I wore it every Sunday chapel at school for four years and these that you know and that wasn't you know De you could go to Debenhams and buy fantastic quality well-made everyday stuff yeah because the cheap end of fast fashion has dragged the middle market all the way down into the gutter there is nobody making affordable everyday well-made stuff great quality t-shirts great quality sweatshirts great pants great socks great lambswool knitwear sort of gone you can get it you can go to people like torts or margaret howell or sunspell they make it but you're paying a very premium price because the volumes are really small yeah the whole concept with community clothing was fill up all these amazing factories year round by giving them really simple stuff to make that they can make it when they're quiet and we sell it so community clothing essentially acts like a kind of cooperative so we only mark it up the tiniest amount. So you can buy a T-shirt from us today for 21 quid. We would like it to be more like 15, 14 quid, and we'll get there in the end. You can buy a fantastic pair of socks from us for £2.50 that are made in an amazing factory in, in, in Leicestershire, albeit with a dead stock yarn. You know, we're trying to make really good quality stuff available at a really affordable and price. And finding clever ways to do that. Well, we just built a business model that cuts out all of the normal cost. So if you, look at the, if you look at the standard model that the clothing industry works on, somewhere between 20 and 25% of the price you pay is the clothing. The other 75 to 80% is all the other Factors. stuff. Some of it's retail, some of it's design, some of it's marketing, some of it's transport and supply chain. There's all that other cost involved. And we said, well, fuck all that. We'll just cut that out. And we'll just make the clothing bit as high. Like, so I think we work on, we work on a markup of about 1.4 to 1.5. Wow. Normally, clothing industry works on about six times. Mm -hmm. Cheaper end works on about three and a half times. But, you know, we're saying, you know, 65% of the money you give us goes directly to those factories. So you're getting... You know, for every £100 you spend, you're getting 65 quid's worth of clothing instead of 20, 25 quid's worth of clothing. Mm. Uh, and that's the, that's, that's the really big difference. So the whole point is to make... And, and it's, it is definitely not fashion. So we've designed a sweatshirt. That sweatshirt will never change. You know, it's based on the kind of 1920s, 30s original. That's it. Mm. It doesn't change. So we don't have a big design team. We're not doing seasonal collections. That bit is, All of that has been cut out. And it just means that the factories know exactly what they're making. And also, because of that, we don't ever have to go on sale. Also, there's no margin for a sale anyway. But, you know, we don't go on sale. There's nothing, you know, there's no seasonal rush. We can put, you know, winter clothes in the, you know, have winter clothes in the store in January, February, March when it's cold. Um, because we're not working on the same cycle as everybody else. So it's kind of different. It's just a different business model. And it, you know, and I think that's, Funny enough, you know, we, I work a lot with various different organisations, Fashion Revolution um, being one of them. And I was just reading something on there today. And it's like, how can, how can you square this circle of, you know, big fashion and sustainability? And I think the point is you kind of can't. Yeah. If, if, if your business is being driven by shareholder profit, it will always be, you know, required to push more consumption. And... Our model is different. I mean, it's owned by 
us. And we don't really, we, you know, we don't need to be billionaires. We're very happy just trying to do something good. And the point is the value goes to the communities that make it. Yes. So we're making community clothing in, now I think it's, oh God, I can't remember what we did. With between 21, 21, 22 factories in the UK. We're, there's a couple that we're just working to bring on now. So our pant, we're working with a pants factory in South Wales. It's another amazing story. This is a business that, you know, South Wales, there were six big underwear factories and, you know, half of the UK's underwear was made in two valleys in just north of Cardiff. Brilliant. And it all went away. The last one was this Gossard factory. And the head of the factory was sent off to Asia to set up the new Gossard factories in Asia. And when that was done, he got handed his pink slip and he bought the factory, he bought the machinery and he set up on his own. And until September of last year, that's what he did. And then he went out of business. And we're working with him. The, the, the staff are still in the area. They haven't moved anywhere. The factory's still there. The machinery's still there. So we're going to try and, you know, we're going to start with two machinists which will probably do us about a thousand pairs of pants a month so wow but if we can sell 1500 pairs of pants a month we'll hire another machinist if we can make it 3000 we'll so there's a very direct linear it's like it's pants for jobs in south wales but the point is those businesses are important to those communities mm. not just because it's money in people's pockets it's an identity you know having good work is important to people's sense of well-being it's important to community well-being and, you know, so our, you know, our, our, our thing is really simple. You know, we're, you know we're, we don't want to lose money doing it, but if we can create value for all these other actors, you know, our constituents, our stakeholders are our, you know, are our factories. And, you know, we're really, really, luckily it's working. You know, it's, it's, it's sort of, it keeps doubling and doubling and doubling and we're going in, you know, we're on a, we're on a, a pretty steep trajectory, but, you know, got no money we're just a tiny little business we're trying to do it on our own um but people really like it you mm. know I, I posted a picture of of um new tredigo where the underwear factory is and loads of people like got to support south wales you know we've got factories in scotland we've got factories in across different bits of england we haven't we haven't one in northern ireland yet but we hope we might at some point big big shirt factory that we talked about working with unfortunately closed um, uh, two months ago smith and gibson factory God, it's, really it's depressing, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Um, when you bought Norton's all those years ago, did you ever imagine that you would become a sort of a champion of British manufacturing? Because I think in many people's eyes today, you are. Uh, well, no, I didn't. Re no, I didn't imagine that. But it, it, right from the very beginning at Norton's, it was really important to me. I mean, I worked in manufacturing for 10 years before I came, before I went back to university. So I worked... I worked in various towns in the in the northwest and in and just outside of Oxford and just 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 by Abingdon, but I worked in Prescott, Whiston, Helsby. Where else did we work? No, that was it really. So I worked for you know we we had we had big factories. So I worked for a company called BICC, and at the time we employed thirty five thousand people. In the past, we'd employed a lot more. I mean, the town of Prescott. I noticed Everton under 18s were playing Prescott Cables the other night. Prescott Cables is the football club in the town of Prescott. Prescott was a town that, that 28,000 people in that town worked in, in one factory, the BICC factory. And we had, we had lots and lots of people in all of those towns, all making amazing stuff. And that all of those factories have gone. I mean, I, I left there 20 years ago, but all, there is not a single UK factory making that stuff. And those jobs were so important to those people. And it's so important to our identity as a nation that we make good stuff. I mean, mm. and, and the sad thing is, we could be making lots, lots more stuff if people would think differently about how we do it. You know, it, technology has moved on. You know, cheap labor is no longer the dominant factor in, in advanced manufacturing. You know, we could be making, you know, we still sit on stools, we drink from cups and glasses we use. To, like, all of that stuff could be made here if people were prepared to invest in, you know, state-of-the-art kit, you know, if you built, you know, the modern factories that are popping up in Asia to make this stuff, if you took that same investment and dropped it here and, you know, put the money and the time into creating a sort of pathway from school up through a kind of technical education into those, those jobs, they'd be great sustainable jobs that people would really enjoy. And, and I think, you know, I, 
I've, I've always liked it. I've always liked working in factories. I worked in some really fantastic ones. You know, I worked for BICC. I then worked for Corning, big glass technology company. And then I worked for Bookham, who made opto-electronic components. Very sexy stuff. Mm. Um, but making stuff is good. You know, people, people like making stuff for a living. And, and um, yeah, I, 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 I didn't set off with the intent, the express purpose of, of, of being a champion for all that. But I am. Yeah, well, I'm thrilled that you are. I'm glad someone out there is. Um, interestingly, a guest that's uh, already been on this season is uh, Alice Walsh from Alice Made This. And I had a really nice chat with Alice a few weeks ago, and she was saying she thinks there is a real problem with education, technical education in this country. Um, and we touched on it in her interview. Do you think that's fair? Yes, totally fair. I think uh, we, we for, for very, very good reasons, I think... Tony Blair's Labour government, the, the, you know, the new Labour movement, did a lot of good stuff. But one of the things it did was it, it changed the focus of secondary education towards gearing everyone for a, for a, for a degree, yes. a sort of academic degree. And I think that was well-meaning, but, 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 but ill thought through. And I think it's left a really big hole. I think there are a lot of young people for whom an academic education is not the best route to a fulfilling career. I think for many of them, uh, uh, a technical apprenticeship, a technical college and a technical apprenticeship would lead to careers that are much more fulfilling and much better for their particular skill sets. You know, not everyone is destined to be, you know, an academic, uh, to, to work in an academic pursuit. And so we've got a big hole. You know, schools are not preparing people for the rigours of working you know, learning to do a skilled job at all, I think, right now. And I think we've got to have a look at what we do with people from the ages of 14 plus and, and try and bring, you know, a second stream back into that education programme that really works. I absolutely agree. I'm thrilled to hear you say that. Um, I also think it, it almost goes even one point further, which is I think as a result of that, um, that, that, that pushing of a, almost a whole generation towards... Afford, an affordable university experience, supposedly, which has not come to pass. Um, it almost made doing something vocational uh, uh, the, the the sort of the dirty second choice. class, yeah, which, yeah which, which is so wrong. Yeah, um, and I still think that's we, yeah. my generation has a problem with that. Today. Yeah, I think we've done we've done in the last ten years. I think there's been an extraordinary revival in craft making. And we've celebrated craft makers. So that one man or woman who sits in a shed and spends three weeks forging a knife and carving a handle and making one object that, you know, the, the sort of the beauty of a, you know, that individual crafted object. We celebrate that enormously. But what we don't celebrate is the joy of collective manufacturing. You know, factories are organisms that run filled with machines and great people and you know and create you know it's the same thing you start with a pile of material and you end the week with a pile of amazing things and we've you know we've we've completely undersold the idea of the career in in that kind of manufacturing partly because some of those factories are a bit a bit tatty a bit run down you know but the best of them are really amazing i did a ted talk last year and I made the point, you know, I go to some factories that are like, you know, that I'd like to live in. You know, you go to, go to Rolls-Royce at Goodwood or you go to the Jaguar Land Rover factory or Aston Martin. You're like, this place is like so cool. I'd like it as my house, not, <laughs> you know, my place of work. And I think there's, there's got to be an amount of that, you know. But, you know, when, when, you, when you're in an industry that's declining and declining and declining, it's hard to put the money back in. You know, most, you know we're lucky at Cookson's. We've, we're, in a, we're in a purpose-built reasonably state-of-the-art factory we're certainly not state-of-the-art but our building at least is you know purpose-built in 2002 we're on 15,000 square feet it's you know it's it's well laid out it's well lit it's dry it's clean it's it's everything that some clothing factories are not and there's a romance around all of that but actually if you're going to get young people really enthused like it's got to be as sexy as going to work at Google or, totally. you know, that's, that's, it's gotta, it's gotta, it's gotta be that. And they are, you know, again, as manufacturing moves forward, you know, AI, advanced automation, 
the skill set required by people working in factories is changing. There is less of the skilled manual work. There's more of the, you know, there's more uh, advanced um, IT skills required. They're much more futuristic than I think a lot of people realize. And, you know, but schools have got to get, you know, got to take, you know, ownership of preparing people for different kinds of careers. Because, I mean, AI is going to kill bazillions of mid-level kind of clerical academic jobs. I mean, it's going gonna, it's gonna to completely transform work. Um, but we are still going to need to sit on chairs and we're going to still need to drink out of cups unless, you know, something really radical happens. Um, and all that stuff could be providing good employment for people here. Yeah, really interesting. Let's hope that that comes to pass. It's... Um, uh, I, my, I guess I, I wasn't going to ask it, but I am going to ask... Do you think that there, there is a, a solution to this? Have you got any thoughts on how we make these jobs sexier? Or where, well, I mean, what, what we're trying to do, what we're trying to do with community clothing is just prove that you can economically make clothing in the UK, even with factories that are underinvested in, that are maybe not as automated as they could be. We're trying to prove that actually manufacturing simple things... I mean, the government has rightly put a huge focus on advanced manufacturing, aerospace, uh, you know, uh, IT, digital arts, all sorts of that, you know, that kind of industry, it's, it's, it's gone, you know, it's gone hell for leather behind pushing, but it's really forgotten that, you know, actually this everyday stuff probably has at least another 50 years to run. And, you know, and they're easier jobs to get into. Um, we're trying to prove that it can be done. Um, you know, I think it's it's one step at a time. You know, if 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 community clothing works, then hopefully what it will do is we'll, it will get some of those factories we're working with into a position when they can start, you know, go, sort of getting them back into a positive spiral. So you know, when the volumes go up, the efficiencies go up, so the prices come down, so more you know more business will go their way, so they'll have a bit more money to invest in automation, and the volumes will go up again, so the efficiency will go up and up. So the prices will come down and they'll get back into a kind of virtuous circle of, you know, increasing efficiency, increasing investment, increasing jobs, decreasing costs, improving quality. You know, it's a win for everyone here. Um, and, you know, the, the flip side of that is everyone says, well, you know, the jobs in Bangladesh are doing a good thing of raising people out of poverty. But they're short lived. You know, once that once those wages start to arrive, we rise. We've seen it in China you know, there's been a dramatic drop already in clothing manufacturing in China. Once, once re wages rise to just a normal, sensible living level, the factories move because that end of fashion doesn't want to be paying good wages. It wants stuff for cheap. So, you know, these are not long-term jobs, whereas if you can build it here, you can build it in a way that is sustainable. And, and I think, you know, I'm hopeful that it'll change. I'm hopeful. I mean, I've, I, again, I've got a vision of what it can be. I can see community clothing with, you know, the campus with the lakes and the, you know, the spinning, the spinning sheds are over there and the weaving <laughs> sheds are there and the CMT factories are there and the knitting plant and the, you know, the big glass canteen and the, you know, the hoverboards going into the car park and all that sort of shit, you know. I can sort of see it and I can, you know, in my mind's eye, I know where it wants to be. And I think it's possible. Um, you know, it's not going to be quick again, you know, cause we've got about 10 quid in the bank, but, um, you know, if anyone wants to help, we're here, but, um, yeah, I think it's possible. Well, I, um, I think that's absolutely tremendous. Patrick, th thank you so much for, for taking some time to talk me through all your different projects and offer, offer so many interesting insights and opinions. Um, I've been an admirer of your work at, at Norton's and Torts for years, and I'm going to leave this interview a firm admirer and believer in community clothing as well. Um, and I hope, our, I hope our listeners will too. It's something we've really all got to get behind. Well, thank you very much indeed. It's been my pleasure. Well, I hope you enjoyed that, folks. That's all for this week. A reminder that Birch produced this podcast. They are a marvellous New York and London-based creative agency. Check out their work at thinkbirch.com. Joe Boyd is our sound editor and our theme music composer. Hear more from him at This Is Joe Boyd. Thank you as always for tuning in and please don't forget to rate and review us if you like what you've heard. I'll leave you now with Patrick's last few quickfire words of wisdom and can't wait to see you next week. 
Okay, Patrick, quick fire time. Okay, some, ready. Some, some last Fingers bits of wisdom, buzzers. please. Um, what has been your proudest moment? Uh, gosh, toss up. There are three. I played rugby for Scotland. I got one cap for Scotland and I scored a try against Wales and it was on the BBC News in Wales. <laughs> uh, that was quite good. Brilliant. I won the Menswear Designer of the Year Award. Of course. That's a biggie. And I got an honorary doctorate from Harriet Watt. Um, so one of those three I couldn't pick. Great. Great Probably. moments. Yeah. Um, what thoughts or feelings or willpower has kept you going when times have been tough? Um... I mean, it's, it's almost always tough. Um, but, you know, I think it's, I, you know, I can see this stuff. I can see it in my, in, in, my, in my mind's eye. I can see where it can be. And, you know, everything, it, it, everything's difficult. And, you know, I learned from, from 10 years of working in business that, you know, nothing happens easily. Um, and, you know, I kind of enjoy the, the, the struggle sometimes. Maybe it's the kind of Scottish Episcopalian, <laughs> you know, self-flagellation thing that uh, but yeah you know it, i don't mind hard work and you know it should be worth it um flippant question but i'm interested to see what what comes to mind what makes a man stylish in your eyes um i think it's a way it's a, it's a way of being i think it's 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 being honest and truthful to themselves in everything that they do whether it's their clothes or their manner or their you know all of their habits i think being being an honest being an honest representation of yourself and finally what is the best piece of advice you've ever received my weirdly my the motto of my college at oxford was manners maketh man and on the stained glass in my mum's porch in edinburgh is also the same motto but in slightly scottish and I think that is a that is a good. I mean, paraphrasing that, try and be a good person. Try and be kind and empathetic, and and good wherever you can. I think that's that's how I try and live my life. Marvelous. Well, thank you again very much indeed. I've really enjoyed this. 